0: Welcome to the wisdom of madness with Rasuli and Jesh Derox. Two friends from different worlds discuss the beauty and mystery of creativity. For thirty years. I was searching for God. And when my eyes were finally opened, I discovered that it was God who was seeking me. It's from a mystic by the name of Bastami, whose power is in one sentence that changed Rumi's life. When when faced Rumi in the bazaar for the first time, the days, you know, Friday was like Sunday mass. So everybody is behind Rumi, and Rumi is coming through the bazaar to go, and then all of a sudden there is this man who is coming from a distance, this old man. So he came to Rumi, and they became face-to-face. And he said hello to Rumi, and Rumi asked where he was coming from. And he said, I come from a place of love. Hmm. and Rumi said, oh, you're coming from Mecca. And he said, no, it's the opposite direction. That became interesting, but it was difficult for Rumi to connect with it. So he started moving away, and the old man said, I have a question. Who was right, Muhammad or Bastami? And Rumi, the leader at the time, he was not even into poetry or anything like that. He said, of course it was Muhammad. Muhammad was God's prophet. So whatever he said was right. And Shams said, then why did Muhammad say, God, forgive me for not recognizing your greatness. And Bastami said, pray to my greatness. One saw God separated from him and apologized from God for Hmm. not recognizing his greatness. And Bastami said, pray to the greatness within me. That was the sentence that changed Rumi. That Ayatollah, that priest, suddenly turned into a mad lover. And poetry was pouring out as he was dancing or playing or singing or just walking. His followers wrote it down. Bastami says, for 30 years, I was searching for God, hmm. and when my eyes were finally opened, I discovered that it was God who was seeking me. It was God within me who was seeking to build me, to create me, to to express me, to develop me.
1: There's so many things that are coming to me, you know, to to say and to ask and to share, but honestly, just energy here in the room so profound in some ways it almost seems like anything i could possibly say would just be almost an interference with that but for the sake of all of the pre-roomies out there who will be hearing this who are on their their donkeys or their horses or whatever right after mass and headed out into the world to, to have lunch and to do all the busy things i think Sometimes it is really important to give it that, that second chance like, like Shams did. You know, it's such a fascinating story. And I'm always so impressed and amazed at how much can be caught in a story and how it can, it can literally just transport you to a whole other world. The question, I think, being able to ask that question, was such a, a wise and powerful piece of art that Shams really did in that moment. Because, as you say, Rumi was a leader. He was a man of power. He was a man who expected people to listen to him, I'm sure, at that point in his life. He was a very intelligent man. He was probably very good at what he did, very well respected. And I think a lot of times when people have been thinking about religion or spirituality and wanting to tell other people about it and share it, and they think that's their mission to do that, it's very rarely in the form of a question. It's almost always in the form of somebody telling somebody else what to do or what to think or what to say. And it's so fascinating how that sometimes the wisest thing to do is to not tell them anything, but just to ask, ask a question, you know, but not just any question, a really, really interesting question like the one that Shams did. Today, was it 600 years later or more, uh, Rumi is considered the most widely read poet in the world, and all the people that have been touched by his word and his life You could trace all of that back to that exact moment in the bazaar where Rumi was about to go on, and instead of going on, Shams asks a question. And even in the way that he asks it, it's quite interesting because he denotes the leadership role that he has. As we end up finding out later, Shams is incredibly wise and probably the senior of, of Rumi in many ways. But in that particular moment, he didn't need to enforce that or lord that over him and he just took the shape that would be the most useful or relevant shape in that moment and in that moment it was the shape of the the humble person requesting to interact with or have some piece of advice you know from the great and wise and powerful leader and if you just look at at the fruit and the effects that came from that incredibly wise decision we could say that all the people who were ever touched by rumi where in fact the first moment that they began to be touched by Rumi wasn't even by Rumi, it was by Shams right in that moment. When we talk about this subject, you know, that we're exploring right now, you know, vision for your life, I think the whole idea of having a a question involved in that instead of an answer is also a really, really interesting way to explore that because Rumi knew who he was, at least he thought he did. And he had a lot of validation for that, and he had probably helped a lot of people in his way, but it paled in comparison to how many people he ended up helping. And the difference between those two roomies, one would have lived and died, and we probably would have never heard about him, even though he lived a good life. And the other became completely free of the bounds of normal human life and became godlike in a lot of ways, in the sense of being able to spread a message beyond death, beyond time. To think that that started with a question is really powerful.
0: That's really what Socrates was all about. Just a question. Who is wiser? Are you wiser or am I wiser? Simple question. People like Rumi are a part of development of humanity. And even destroyers Mm. are a part of the development of humanity. It's about doing something for the people. Sometimes it takes ruthless gardener to pull a weed out. Pulling that weed out allows a tremendous numbers of flowers and seeds to come out. How do we see that? The answer is simple. It's what it is. Don't judge it. It's neither wrong nor right. Accept it. It meant to be that way. It meant for the sun to go down. It's what it is. God and human is really a very interesting subject that maybe we should talk about. Sure. First, what is human? What makes us as human beings? And let's look at it a little bit more rational than just esoteric idea of soul and all of that. There's no scientific proof for it. But how does this work? How does the soul come into my body? Is it getting through my father's sperm, at some point, the soul got inside me. When we look back at it throughout the development of a child, as from the beginning where the heart comes, it's really the whole journey is to build a machine, building a cup, building a container, and every physical element begins to to be built in that factory, which is that water that we're in the womb and being fed completely different. We were being developed in this whole water. And we expanded as a cup, just a cup. We had no life. And the cup came out. The very first moment that it came out, a breath of life came into it. That breath of life is when the soul enters the body. It is the breath of life. Mm. And if you take it out, life is finished. And we did not have that breath of life before we came out. We were just a machine. Now that breath of life enters and we begin to develop with that breath of life. That breath of life is the purpose. We are the container. Breath of life is life itself. Divine is that breath of life, because it has divinity. it has the nature of divinity, and it's eternal. And there is no beginning or end to it.:
1: It really strikes me as you say that that you know, we look at paintings or books or sculptures or desks or you know, anything that's here in the physical world. And we're quite clear that we made those things. We're quite clear about that. They're just made, especially a painting, I think, especially in this day and age. It's, it's almost become a symbol for art itself. But we make our thoughts, you know, we make our worldviews, we make our vision of life in a very similar way as we make a painting. <laughs> and it's just as arbitrary, it's just as changeable, it's just as subject to being a part of <laughs> a myth, And fable. And I think that's an interesting point to note, because a lot of times people don't treat their thoughts and their worldviews as if they were fables or myths. There's this unquestionable worship of them a lot of the time. I think one of the most striking elements about that is that, or impactful elements, I should say, is Mm -hmm. that people very rarely change their worldviews. Very rarely do people change views about themselves, I would say. And usually the situations that do are very traumatic situations or or situations with a lot of loss, tragic situations, which inherently rip away and destroy and, and force a kind of change in worldview. And I think something that's so powerful and important for humans to get to on a higher level than we are now, is this understanding that all of it is created. All of the thoughts are created. All of the relationships are created. All of the worldviews are created. And the incredible power and effect that they have to shape us and to shape our decisions and to shape our values uh, and to shape, you know, how we end up spending our time, which is very clearly probably the most important decision we ever make. We have not only the ability to change those things, I would even say we have the duty to change those things. We have the duty to be a good gardener and a caretaker of those things that we have created in our mind. It's a subject that I think doesn't get as much attention as it it really deserved, because if people around the world were walking around understanding that they're constantly painting in their mind, they're constantly creating all of these paintings, whether or not they're aware of it, it's still happening.
0: It's art itself that can develop us, but we made art a product while art was initially a verb. Mm. To art was to spread goodness, what you felt is good. That spreading good is the essence of creativity. How do we resolve that in order to have our spreading goodness could really help humanity? How do we do that?
1: Well, what comes to me as soon as you raise that really interesting question is that there are these two very distinct modes of the human existence. You know, there's the child mentality, which includes the baby and the child and the older child, but all of it still is considered child. And then there's this other phase that we call adult. Even though there are very clear biological, physical differences between those two stages, mentally, it's a much more gray line. <laughs> The main difference psychologically, you know, between a child and an adult is that a child is mostly under the care and responsibility of another, whereas theoretically the adult is inside of their own care and inside of their own responsibility. And when you asked that question, what came to me instantly was there are many, many, many minds on earth that are still very much in a child mentality. And so they are responding to the ideas and the creations of other people as a child would. They either rage against it, or they cower beneath it, or they hide because of it, or they just do as they're told. In some moments, obviously, it is helpful to be in the child mentality and be allowed to receive where you didn't have to work for it. But the problem is that a lot of what's being created out there is unhealthy and and dangerous and so deeply dishonoring of life. And yet, in the same way as the child just accepts the parent for whatever the child is, or for whatever the parent is, many people on earth just accept, oh, well, this is the way the world is. This is the way the government is. This is the way that my family has always been. And what really needs to happen is a maturing of the mind to step up to take the destiny of the adult, which is to be able to discern whether or not what somebody else has created is in honor of their own life and whether or not that's a good fit with their life and and what they want. And as I said, it's a very confusing scenario because you can look at somebody and it's like, well, he has a beard, you know, he's obviously an adult. And while that might be true on the outside, it can be miles and miles and miles from true on the inside. And I think a big part of that problem is we just have had very few examples of people on earth who have fully stepped in to their ability to be an adult, to be fully self-responsible. Because in the same situation where there's a bully picking on a child, usually the child in that moment is either running away or hiding or, or maybe pitifully you know, fighting back, but that's rare. An adult walks into that same situation and instantly says, no, this is absolutely not okay and I, I will not accept that. And they make changes instantly coming from that place of authority. And I think a lot of humans out there, I know myself many times in my life, I have felt like a child being bullied, you know, by circumstance or by the world or by this other person, so far from my, my true power to be able to create and to be able to interact with that situation in a way that, that will cause a resolve of it. And even more than that, to use that situation to grow and learn from.
0: One of my great joys these days is to spend Sundays with my two grandchildren. This is the ultimate happiness for me. The greatest teacher is inside them. That emotion is so powerful, so pure, so untouched, that every word that they say, you want to just swallow the word. So I begin to enjoy their mentality and how it works. We as grown-ups were condemned many times until we were suitable for the society. Mm -hmm. A lot of our training was condemnation. Mm -hmm. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. We made a religion out of it. How do we change that condemnation into attraction? How do we go back to that distraction versus attraction?
1: Well, one of my favorite you know, artists of all time, and certainly an incredible maker of beautiful quotes, is Picasso. He says, all children are artists. The problem is how to remain one. That's the exact thing that we're talking about, is they come in with that creative power. They come in looking at a bunch of stones and sticks and mud and they see kingdoms and they see stories and they see, you know, magic. And adults look at that and they they see nothing anymore. It's just stones and sticks, you know. And then you also have Jesus in this story being surrounded by children and he was playing with them and they were coming up to him just so drawn to the energy of him. And some disciples come in, you know, and say, go away from Jesus. He's doing busy, important things, you know. And Jesus says no, no, no. Let the children play. Let them do this. He said, in fact, you can't even get to heaven. You can't even enter into the kingdom of heaven unless you come as one of these children do. And again, we've got that switch between this authoritative, smart leader of the apostles, the disciples coming in, and it's kind of like Rumi on that horse We've got stuff to do. Jesus is supposed to be preaching at uh, 3.30, and it's 3.27 right now. We've got to shoo these kids away. You know, we've got to organize all this stuff, thinking that that's the most important thing. And the master, Jesus, he says, no, no, no. You think it's important that I speak at 3.30? No. Watch what they're doing. This is important. You see how the child is picking up the stone as if it's the only thing that's ever existed. You see how he reaches to show his friend by putting his arm on his head, as if the friend is the most important thing that's ever existed. You can't even get close to heaven. They won't even let you near the gates unless you're coming from this place. And it's fascinating that all children on earth with no training, with no religious schedule, with no complex belief systems, with no awards, they already know that.
0: You started talking about childhood by quoting Picasso. By the time he was 15, 16, 17 years old, he was a master of painting. He was so sophisticated that he began to go back to his childhood. He wanted to experience that all his life he was in search of finding his childhood. And he played just like a child. Every four years he would change the whole (laughs) direction of his work a whole new way of playing. And those new ways of playing were the ones who cr- created many of the elements of our 20th century. And they're still very powerful. For a whole four years, he painted with blues only. So when he wants to show the sun in blue, he would learn how to adjust the other blues around it. So that particular blue would look yellowish. <laughs> he is talking about how we can see things, how we can relate things together. Mm. I don't know if I ever told you the story of this uh, this Indian uh, rich man who had this pain in his eyes. No doctors could heal him. He would go to London, come to L.A., New York, every hospital, every specialist Nothing. This pain was so powerful. His eyes were just hurting him constantly. So one day, when he had given up completely, one of his associates told him that there's this guru who lives in such and such cave and he does miracles. So why don't you go to him? And he says, I don't believe in miracles. (laughs) They're nonsense. But the pain is so much. Finally, they get the helicopter, and he flies in there and goes to see that guru, and guru asks him why he's, he's here, and he tells him that I have this pain in my eyes, and he says, you've probably seen too many colors. If you just see green colors, you would be healed. This is ridiculous, but the pain is so much, he orders his bedroom to be painted all green, <laughs> So they paint the whole bedroom green, and the eyes feels a little bit better. Change the carpet to green carpet, and change the bed, everything green, wow. Feels a lot better. Every time he's in the bedroom, (laughs) he doesn't feel the pain. So he orders the rest of the house to be all painted green, and carpets green, and and servants should wear only green clothes, and got to a point that (laughs) they even have to paint their faces green. And he was healed completely. And he was so thankful. So he didn't know how to thank this guru. Finally, he decided to give a big feast for him and let, let him come and do whatever he wants to do. Arranges for this big feast. And they send the helicopter, brings the guru back, and guru walks in and looks around. Wow, green, green. He keeps on looking at the green, green. And then the rich man tells him that you helped me so much. No doctor could do that. He said, how did I help you? He said, you told me that you have to see everything green. And that healed me. That's why I made everything green. And he looks at him and says, you don't have to make everything green. All you had to do was wear green glasses. And this is what our life is. All we have to do is wear green glasses. Mm -hmm. We don't have to change other people. Mm -hmm. We don't have to tell them what to do constantly and make programs for them, make morality for them, make politics for them. Well, all we have to do is just wear green glasses. And this is what we don't recognize, that the whole beauty of oneness is the variety in it. What is the use of a light? Light is not beautiful. Light makes things look beautiful. So Picasso is really a great example as we look at his works. If we become the child looking at the work and begin to feel the invitation to play, all we have to do is be the child and feel those elements.
1: Yeah, another quote of his that I really love is, he says one time, I wish I could cut out my brain and use only my eyes. I think what he's talking about there is this system that we have developed in our mind, you know, to say this should be like this, and this should be like this, this should be like this. He's talking about the judgment and how the eyes themselves are completely without judgment. They're just these beautiful gateways from the outside world to the inside world. Uh, but the eyes are so often used as instruments of warfare, really. You know, they're used as these vessels of condemnation and of suppression and, and all of that kind of stuff. And Picasso says, I'm just tired of my brain. I just wish I could just throw it out. Paul, you know, the apostle, he says it a kind of different way. And he says, when I would do a nice thing, you know, I don't. When I want to try really hard, I feel lazy instead. When I wants to, you know, work all night, I get sleepy. And just talking about this struggle that we all, we all face, you know, and that we all have to go through in different ways with this tug of war that's, that's in our mind. And that story you, you told is such an interesting illustration because, you know, I didn't even suspect that that's where it was going right until the very end, in the same way that the man is making everything green at such great cost, at such great effort, at such great control over so many things. You know, it's like that is again the difference between Rumi on the horse being the person in authority and and supposed power versus the very humble, quiet power of shams. It's, you know, the power of the world, the way that we think we need to go about this is we need to change the world outside of us. And the guru, you know, it was so obvious to him that he didn't even think he needed to tell the man, just get green glasses. (laughs) It's the most obvious thing because the guru. You know, Shams, it's obvious that all you need to do is change the way you see. That's the only thing that that happens. Your, Your pain is coming from the way that you see all these things, not from those things themselves.
0: See, the main thing is the seeing versus perceiving. These are two that we're completely confusing constantly because perceiving is an inner sense and seeing is an outer sense. Other senses can help the inner senses, mm-hmm. but they don't make decisions for them. The inner senses make decisions. They're really like the advisors to the president. Mm-hmm. They're not the president themselves. If we live with the advisor, just seeing and seen, it goes directly to our brain the same way as perceiving does, but seeing goes directly to our brain mm-hmm. and we have this grinder that grinds out what we are not familiar with. It just only grinds what is recognizable by us. Mm. It's just like Instagram. You just stop wherever you find something that you recognize. You're connected with something else. Perceiving is a different thing. Perceiving is to see things that you have not seen. Mm. The way that you perceive something, the way you perceive these glasses are different from the way you see them. The way you see them is in perspective usually, but the way you perceive them is not in perspective because inner senses don't recognize perspective. The soul does not recognize perspective. And that's why Picasso was trying to break perspective in his cubism period, so we would not see them through the seen eyes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We would visualize them through our perception
1: from that definition, it's really a fascinating way to look at those words. I think it seems that you know when we talk about perceiving, we're talking about a sense, usually sight, but it really could be any of the senses that's been paired with ideas and paired with often judgments, you know, and paired with things that have been made in the mind, old paintings usually. The marriage of those two things, the seeing that comes in, the sense that comes in, the preconstructed ideas, uh, that's very rarely conscious for people. It just happens instantaneously. Because of that, it seems like the thing that just came in, well, that had nothing to do with me, that's just what he said, or that's just what happens to me. But that subconscious joining of the sense information with this Pre-existent creation in the head, I think is a really, really important and powerful thing to learn how to recognize because the sense information coming in, we have no control over. The senses come in as they come in, things happen as they happen. But because we are often invisible, we are often unaware with our part in that, which is the perception part, we can spend our life in the dark side of, of being that child which is just you know a victim a subject to all of these horrible things that are happening around us but it's it's a place of reaching that level of maturity of mastery to as that sense comes in yes you fully accept the sense yes you see it as it is but now you you don't just reference it to something that happened a long time ago and then feel powerless against it now you take out your entire palette of colors And you pick your favorite brush and then you say, okay, how do I want to paint with this energy coming in? How do I want to change it or transform it? Or how do I want to play with it? And maybe play is the best word out of all of those because the child's ability on the positive side to look at the rock and see a horse and to look at at the mud and to see an ocean, that is the art of perception used brilliantly and how do we know it's used brilliantly? Because the final result is joy. That's how we know. That's the marker. If you're using your perception brilliantly as a, as a real artist deserves to, as the body deserves to, then the result of that perception will always result in joy. Not necessarily happiness, but but joy. And it's like that is one of the main hallmarks of the saints and of the great ones of the past these horrible things would come in sometimes and everybody else would be running, screaming, saying, the world is ending, the world is ending. You know, and the saint, the master, the great one, looks and says, oh, wow, the world is just beginning. Able to see the exact opposite thing as as most people do. So when we tie that back into the subject we're exploring of, you know, the vision of life, like what is our vision of life, I think a lot of people without really meaning to have, have subscribed to a very popular version of life that was handed down to them by their parents and theirs before and theirs before a long time and and very few of their actual ideas about their self in the world are really done from a place of play from a place of conscious exploration with the result of joy and i think that if, if a person is going to start exploring and practicing on a practical level well if my current worldview isn't serving me at the highest level or if it's not leading me to the places I really want to go, how can I change that? I think joy is the indicator. It's the best It's the best measurement tool that I know of. Go through every single thought, every single phrase in your mind, every single idea about yourself, every single idea about the world and ask yourself, what's the end result of that particular idea? If it's not joy, toss it.
0: Yeah, and, and how we can achieve that joy. Everybody wants to Live with joy. Everybody wants to be joyous. But most of us don't know how to be joyful. We think that the rich people with a lot of money are the ones who are joyful. Yeah. Or we think of the celebrities because we see them in the movies or yeah. on the stage. <laughs> and, and we think that this is a joyful life. But that's not really mm. what joy is all about. As society we are mentally constipated. We have so much information. We're filled with it. Every moment, information is all over. So we're filled with it, but we have no idea. We're like the child on Christmas morning. Too many toys. I don't know which one to play with. And this is what what is really causing our society to be so negligent of many, many things that Humanly, we need beyond just the physical body's need that we keep on concentrating on. We just want to extend the length of the cup. To be joyful by itself is recognition of what joy means. Is joy something that I can buy? Is joy something that I can practice every three hours a day to to laugh? So (laughs) physically, I would be joyful. No, joy is something, it's a feeling, it's a sensation that has got to develop within us. And to have joy is to feel at ease. The best way of feeling at ease is when you're on that raft and it's going down Mississippi River and you have no idea (laughs) where the river goes. And you're just lying down on the raft and enjoying everything which is around you. This is what life is all about. If I want to control that raft in that river, it's a pain. And we all live with that.
1: It's really interesting as you're saying that, it's reminding me, the last time I was in India, I was on a tour there through several of the cities. And so I got to see a, a lot of different aspects of the culture, incredibly expensive, intricate structures, and then just incredibly poor structures and lack of structures, just all kind of mixed together. I saw many beautiful things in India, but I think one of the things I saw that was the most beautiful is I was walking one day um, just near sunset, kind of through the slums that were near the place I was living in, and it was definitely a very, very poor part of the city, and uh, there was a lot of people who were walking on the streets or who were standing next to things who were very guarded. They were very concerned and watching other things, all adults, of course, and then I heard this noise and I looked over to this completely barren field, you know, just had rocks and a few twigs and some scary looking dogs and not scary in the way of like, you know, I was afraid of them, like scary as in how are you even alive kind of dogs. And there was this laughter, just this beautiful river of laughter. There was these boys and there was probably like seven or eight of these boys wearing hardly anything, you know, just completely covered in, in you know dirt and just in ecstasy. They were just in ecstasy. And I was watching them to see what they were doing. And they were all standing around in this circle. And uh, one of them had a stick with a string on it. And at the end of the stick with a string was a rock. And I don't even understand what the game is, but somehow he was throwing this and it was hitting the rock in the middle. And if he got you know to hit this one particular rock everybody would just scream in laughter, you know, and how amazing that this was. And I'm a person who's done a lot of traveling, and I've seen a lot of beautiful things and fancy things, and I've seen people who've accomplished incredible things. And I don't know if I've ever seen anybody in my entire life who was more joyful than those particular boys were (laughs) when they they would hit that rock in just the place that, you know, they were doing in this game. And so, To me, I'm hearing a couple things from what you're saying. One is that this feeling of joy that we have definitely comes from using a mix of, you know, the experiences that we're having, the senses that are coming in with in a playful kind of a way, mirroring that with the artistic ability to paint, because rocks by themselves aren't sitting around laughing. It was the mix of those boys imagining that they could be used to laugh. That was a really important piece of it. But then the other piece I'm hearing is that this is taken from us at a certain point because we start feeling responsible and like we have to do all of these things and we've got to get the raft to this certain place at this certain time. The heaviness of that, I think, steals a lot of that time and energy and attention that we think we we could be spending as, as the kids used to. But I think it's very, very important to note just as the stones themselves weren't necessarily fun, that was something that the kids supplied. The responsibilities and problems that we face as adults aren't necessarily fun either, but they can be approached in a fun, playful way just as much as as the rocks can. And I think that's something that a lot of adults don't practice a lot of the time, but is an incredibly powerful thing to practice because there really is no universal law that says that anything that happens to you has to be a horrible thing you really are the one who gets to decide what your relationship to that is and again i think a lot of the time we're just defaulting to what other people have told us about and it's kind of like naming a canyon devil's canyon you know and it's like you you start driving to the canyon and you see the sign and it's like oh no we're entering devil's canyon and as soon as it's called Devil's Canyon, you look around and you're just like, I wonder what horrible thing happened here. <laughs> and really, it was just some guy who was playing a joke sometime. He was like, I know what I'll call this, Devil's Canyon. Or maybe he had a bad day. Or maybe he experienced a loss there one time 500 years ago. And because of that, we've got all of these signs all over the world. Awful river. The Devil's Canyon. The... <laughs> highway of hell just everywhere these terrible signs around everything and on the negative side the child mentality will react to those signs and say well this is what it is the sign says so and the adult in the full power you know the the picasso version the master version of the adult says oh this sign this sign is from a long time ago we don't need this sign anymore i'm going to change the name of this canyon from devil's canyon to canyon of joy and I think in a lot of ways to me that's kind of what an artist is is they have become so self-responsible that they're walking around through the world and they're they're fixing bad old signs that aren't appropriate anymore, you know, they're they're reimagining they're they're transforming them. And when you look at the job of an artist or a creative as that, it kind of really changes the whole thing because instead of seeking out super pleasurable experiences, that you already know is called River of Joy or Canyon of Joy, now you actually seek out. Maybe you welcome even the so-called horrible ones because you know, well, now my work begins. This is why I'm here. And so the awful thing comes your way and you approach it and you say, now I bring the power of the artist. Now I bring the power of God within me to create or to destroy and I change this day your name from canyon of darkness, canyon of hell to canyon of joy.
0: There's a possibility that living with something negative as you grow with it could be actually like a vaccination for you Mm. that would get you more resistance, negative things that could be, you know, messing you up. Mm. Or would it be that you would really welcome it and face it and know that you could Mm-hmm.
1: I think one extra thing I just want to throw in as a practical way of embodying and practicing some of the stuff we've been talking about, I think it would be really interesting for people to start trying to practice being aware of when they immediately react to a situation, when they feel like they're under the power of a label that has already you know, been placed on a particular situation, and then when they feel like they're the one who gets to decide how to take this, because I think the first is you know the dark side of immaturity. The second is moving into maturity and mastery to just remember that's where our power is, is to be able to not be reactive and to slow down, and as things come in, we start feeling ourselves react to just remember, oh, that's the child in me. That's the negative side. That's the immature side. And just to practice having that calm, patient, wise shams there who as Rumi who he knows is his destiny starts moving away from him instead of saying wait Rumi you know stop you were supposed to do these other things this is a really important moment instead to just ask a question what else could this be
0: The Wisdom of Madness is produced by Rasuli, Jesh DeRox and Elizabeth Joy Windham our theme music is by Nicholas Poshberg. If you like what you heard, please subscribe, rate, and review on Apple Podcasts. Also, if you know someone who would appreciate this podcast, we encourage you to share it, screenshot it, and airdrop it to your friends, family, and community.